and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical, theoretical, and educational contexts. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. I have three graphic novels out in addition to self-published works. My new graphic novel has finally just been announced. It is going to be titled Charger County with Silver Sprocket. And I also have a master's degree with in art education. And um, I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. And I also have a master's in English from University of Florida. Um, my research focuses on trans embodiment and experience in comics slash scenes and music, museum studies. Um, and I also make self-published comics. Um, and not to steal Charger County's thunder, because I'm extremely excited for that. But I also just <laughs> finished... The latest comic I'm working on called Ophelia, so that should also be coming soon. <laughs> Very fun. Is it self-published? Yeah, yeah. It'll be online first. Uh, I have a friend who I want to resograph print for me, but I have to sort all that out. So it'll be just sort of a digital thing for a minute until I figure out the printing part. Cool. And we, I guess <laughs> if we're just talking about our <laughs> work right now, why not? Um I have a new uh, comic anthology that our friends Mar and Sunmi yes. helped edit called Datura Magazine Number One, um, and I have a six-page horror comic in that. And it's really good. Everyone should pick up Datura when they can. It'll be at Mice. You should pick it up. Right? It will be at Mice, but people won't be. That's next weekend, and people will not be listening to this. But <laughs> well, retroactively. In time. It'll be over by the time our listeners. <laughs> retroactively go back in time and pick up yeah. a copy. Retroactively. Uh, and, you know, congratulations on picking it up mm-hmm. and being being smart. <laughs> so, MICE is the Massachusetts Indie Comic Expo, by the way, in Boston. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Um, I think it's going to be the last... Uh, comic convention i do for the year Mm. i might do some holiday sales but it's been like a big year for comic conventions for me Uh, and so many people have been telling me that they're drawing a dialogue listener it's so cool so it's really cool thank you Mm -hmm. thank you everyone thank you for listening if you told me that this is a thank you for you (laughs) you Yeah. <laughs> Next year is going to be, I think, my return to uh, comic shows. I couldn't swing uh, this year, but I mean, I'm about to. You said stealing Treasure Country Th- County's thunder, but I'm going to be drawing this book for like two years, so I'm going to be putting my head down. Yeah. Y'all will be hearing about it for a long time before it's available, mm-hmm. um, so don't worry about it. Uh, worry about getting Ophelia from Remus. <laughs> um, so. Um, so if you notice, we uh, missed, this is going to be episode 46. Mm-hmm. We missed last month because Remus was working hard. <laughs> what were you doing, Remus? Um, so I was uh, finishing the draft, like the final drafting of um, the materials I needed for my exam for the PhD, um, which I am actually going to be doing next month like i think probably the monday after you hear this episode if i know when this episode is dropping um but the way that it works is that you have to finish the stuff ahead of time so that you can get it to everyone on your committee so that they can all you know read it and have time to actually respond (laughs) yeah so everyone tell remus 
uh, good luck mm-hmm. on their PhD exam. And what we're going to be doing um, this episode is Remus is going to explain what that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was the idea behind wanting to talk more about the details of a PhD program, Remus? Yeah, so I thought... Um, one, obviously, it's something I'm extremely thinking of right now. Um, yes. And I, we did an episode, uh, I can't remember the, the name, the, the, the number, but we did an episode after I did my master's where I sort of just like talked about my, or at least part of my master's research. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I wanted to do that because I, I do think that there's a fun side effect of drawing a dialogue uh, that is me oriented, not listener oriented but when we started it it was before i had got like i was in the process of applying to grad school right and then mm-hmm. and so like in a way a lot of this podcast is like an archival record of me being in grad school <laughs> because yeah it's, uh, like it just like captured this like me teaching myself how to research and then going to grad school and then like doing the masters and stuff so i kind of wanted to continue that tradition um but also be talking more about the sort of um, actual structure of the dissertation and sort of what that looks like, um, because I know that uh, for a lot of folks who are in academia, it's a little like mysterious um, and opaque, and especially maybe if you're someone who's like interested in um, going to grad school and getting a PhD, or maybe just like want to know what it is. Um, I thought maybe that would be a useful thing to sort of explain, uh, not just like what I'm talking about, but like how the structure of the, the, the dissertation looks and things like that. And, and I even want to say it's a little bit opaque if you are a first generation student. Yeah, true. Like even students aren't quite sure. It's kind of some of that hidden knowledge. They assume you know how these things go as you're in it yeah. like people don't necessarily tell you everything yeah um, <laughs> there's a lot of that i, I want to say um the episodes that we talk about your masters i don't know if it's like a formal masters episode but i think i want to say it's either episode 40 um episode 34 where we talk about where we are when we took the long break um in 2020 mm-hmm. or it could be the episode 42 the balance and burnout episode those two episodes we kind of talk more about um our own experiences and where we are so that's why i'm guessing that's probably where you talked about getting a master's degree yeah but there's also let me look it up really quick episode uh is it is there a more specific episode yeah when we talk about libraries and ya graphic novels episode 29 um oh my portion of that was the reason I, like I, if i recall correctly part of the reason i pitched that episode was that i wanted to use my research because i wrote my master's on queer ya <laughs> oh right but yeah i think we do probably also talk about it and where we are since that was part of 2020 for me where where, where you <laughs> <Yeah>. were <laughs> All right. Um, wonderful. Yeah. So this is why we're talking about it. And I'm so excited to learn more because as even though I've, I know a lot about the process, I've never been in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to learn more. Yeah. And go for I it. am going to preface this also by saying that like um, dissertation processes 
are sort of like snowflakes in that uh, <laughs> there's a general sense. They're so beautiful. <laughs> they fall from the sky. There's a general <laughs> understanding of what they look like, but each school is different. So my, I'm going to be talking about University of Florida's process, which I think from from what I've heard from other folks in English programs is a little bit different from other schools. Um but mm-hmm. you can sort of take generalizations, essentially, right? Um, so for me, first, I entered the PhD program with a bachelor's without a master's, right? It's obviously, because then I went and did a master's while I was there. Um, so I was originally on a six-year funding track, which basically means that while they could guarantee me funding for six years, not like if I didn't finish in that six years, I could take more time, but they couldn't guarantee that I would be able to get paid. Um, so that's why they do it that way. And the first three years of that six years were just coursework. So that's when I was like actively taking classes and things like that and writing seminar papers and all that jazz. Then. After that, after you get out of coursework is when you're supposed to do, like, turn towards the exam and then the actual dissertation. Um, I'm, Mm -hmm. since I'm not employed at the University of Florida anymore, um, as I mentioned, I, like, work at JSTOR now, I'm not on the funding clock anymore, so I'm no longer on that six-year timeline, which... I have a question for you. Oh, yeah, go ahead. If you aren't employed there, do you pay tuition? Yes. Um, So I have to be... in. The way it works for us is that, like, we only have to be enrolled. I have to be enrolled the semester I do the exam, so I'm enrolled this semester. And I have to be enrolled the semester I actually defend the PhD, but otherwise I don't have to be enrolled. Um, So I'm paying tuition this semester, and it's the minimum amount of credits. I'm not enrolled full-time. And then in the future when I do the actual dissertation defense, I'll have to enroll then too. But um, JSTOR is doing tuition reimbursement for me so okay oh okay yeah. great that's awesome so luckily it is still free otherwise uh uf loves uf never classified me as an in-state student even though i was born and raised in florida so i did technically have to pay the out-of-state <laughs> tuition which isn't ridiculous <laughs> but all right <laughs> you know whatever and you have to live there when you go oh okay. yeah it's a whole thing <laughs> it's again all right schools are bad um so I mean, we're here to talk about how it's a whole thing. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> so it's because uh, I came from Providence when I in, was enrolled. So they, t- they right. classified me as out of state. And then usually if you, usually the way it's supposed to work is that, like, if you live there for at least a year, like, it, once you've been there for a year, you should be able to, like, apply to, ch- you know, petition to change to in-state. Um, but but mm-hmm. UF uh, notoriously denies everyone who tries to do that. Like, you have to do it multiple, multiple times. Um, huh. And at that point, I had already uh, changed my car registration to Texas. And I was like, this is, it's fine. Whatever. Oh, uh, okay. I'm not going to keep fighting this. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, where I'm at in the process is the exam stage, which is like um, every, again, every program does it differently. We, UF in the English department doesn't have a formal, like, agreed upon structure. It's entirely dependent upon the um, person who is your chair. So like the person who is like the head of your committee, right? Um mm-hmm. So for me, so, but, but, but I will say like most folks do 
a prospectus, which is like a short document. It's like 10 to 15 pages, um, although I think some people make them longer. Um, that's basically like a summary of what you're doing, the methodology, and like a chapter breakdown. So like a pitch document, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Just explaining what the project is. And then um, some sort of like example chapter or demo or something like that, just to like show what it will actually look like in the project itself. So I wrote an example chapter um, and I wrote a prospectus. And some folks also have to have reading lists, um, which is like when you prepare a book, like you prepare a list of like, these are all the major texts that I'm going to work with. Mm-hmm. And um, we just decided that it it wasn't necessary. Uh, I think it's like one of those things that sort of depends on the preferences of the um, chair. Because like the way the reading list, I think, is supposed to work in the exam normally is that then everyone on your committee, like basically quizzes you on those books (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and and so you have to do like a lot of reading ahead of time um and the way that people most people do it at uf is more focused the exam is more focused on just like the project itself and not like a quiz of stuff that you've already read There's mm-hmm. sort of, a, I think they just sort of like, there's an underlying assumption of like, if you have taken the time to put together all of this material, you are read enough that we don't need to stop and like ask you a million questions about the books that you've read. Mm-hmm. Plus then they, everyone on the committee would have to go and make sure that they have read those books and like have questions ready from those books. And it seems like a waste of everyone's time, if I'm being honest. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I do, I do actually like the more loosey-goosey project focused uh exam structure because i think that's more useful because the 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 way because you're essentially pitching the project that you want to work on right and it's a project that's going to take you like at least two years sometimes longer i guess sometimes shorter if you write really fast but you know whatever um Mm -hmm. and so the idea is like is this something that's actually going to be feasible for this project and so, like, you know, what you're, what they're really doing is um, asking you questions about, like, things you might have, like, missed or things you might want to include or things you might want to do. Like, it is sort of like a pitch um, is the mm-hmm. way that I've, I kind of keep framing it to all of my friends in comics because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that's an accessible uh, way to think about it. And then the actual exam itself. So we have our committees are made of four faculty members. Um, so we have to have two we have a chair of course and then we have to have one other person from the english department and then we need one other one person that is um from outside of the english department so you always have a a, a reader who is someone not in english mm-hmm. and then the, the last person can be either or it's kind of up to you so i have you know a committee of four people and then at the exam itself um they will have read everything ahead of time so it's like I give a little 10 minute presentation just sort of situating us and then one by the, each of them will get about 20 minutes to ask me questions um and and then after that they sort of kick me out and they deliberate and then they bring me back in and let me know what they've decided. Mm-hmm. So it will say like <laughs> um I don't think this is true everywhere we generally don't schedule the exam or the defense unless like your chair is like you're gonna pass this like there's not really an actual Mm. there's not really an actual question of like we're gonna tell you no do this again because Mm -hmm. like again that would kind of be a huge waste of everyone's time right 
it's a two hour ex- mm. it's a two hour exam you have to schedule it for five people it would be kind of annoying to d- go through all of that and then just have them be like no go back to the drawing board right so how do they prep do they look at your materials before the two hour yeah exam yeah so you mm. you send everything out at least two weeks in advance so that they have time to um read through it and like take notes and like point things out like you know whatever they're gonna ask about um and and they might turn you down yeah so are you saying in some oh. yeah i think again i think like in in our case there's very much an understanding of like because ultimately it's up to your chair your chair is kind of the one who holds all the power um and your chair is the one that you're working with the most closely like my chair um dr margaret galvin um and i like we were meeting like once a month basically and like we just met like this past week like you know you you sort of like meet constantly and like work on things together so if 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 the thing isn't like ready if they're like this isn't ready to go out to people like they're not going to schedule an exam you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but i don't think that's true everywhere i have heard horror stories and it also i think depends on the field Mm. i think some fields there is you just do it and then they might fail you <laughs> or like tell you no try again mm-hmm. and i you know i'm i don't say that in a like arrogant way of like oh i'm definitely gonna pass i just mean like i'm pretty reasonably sure that it's like again it's more about like getting feedback on this project um and and i don't i trust that no one would be like yeah we're gonna set you up to be f- failed <laughs> I I have a question. Go for it. So, what does a PhD thesis? Because that's what your exam your exam is like basically like a pitch yeah. for your thesis. Yeah. So your department is like, yes, go ahead, do this thesis for the next two years, yeah. roughly. roughly. What is the form of a PhD thesis? So it's a book, basically. Usually, it's about four chapters. Um, and each chapter is around like 10,000 words, which is somewhere in the range of like, um, 25 to 35 pages. Um, and for most people, so remember that the way that a PhD program is structured is specifically to advance graduate students into a career as a professor right like that's the path okay um not that people don't do other things but in especially like english humanities right the idea is that you get the dissertation you do the dissertation you get the phd you then get go on the job market which is the academic job market and you get a academic job tenured position right um when you say dissertation is that the same thing as a thesis or is it more yeah so thesis Theses is that more for math? Yeah, thesis. I use. I, I think you can base. I would say that I don't think it matters if you call it a thesis, but some people get like very fussy about language. But like theses are shorter. Okay, and the dissertation is a bit is like a you know like a two hundred page document. Um, it's because it's a whole book. But the idea is that like in theory, um, your dissertation should become your first book because um to get tenure you need to have at least, like, one published book. And it's all you, not just one chapter in your yes, book? Yes, it has to be, like, you're a solo... A, a monograph is what they call it, because it's one offer. So you have to have a monograph. Okay. So, again, it's sort of like the, the, the traditional, like, understanding timeline or whatever would be, like, you are in the program, you do this dissertation, you get your PhD, 
and then you have the dissertation, which is basically like a rough draft of a monograph project. And so when you are hired um, at, in a as a uh, as a on a tenure line is what they call it, right? So the the professorship is a tenure line professorship. Um, you start out as an assistant professor, and assistant professors um, are junior faculty, and they don't actually have tenure yet. So the line is mm-hmm. tenured, and you will get tenure, but you don't start out with tenure. You have to earn it. And the way that you earn it is by putting together what's called a um, tenure packet, basically, or a tenure file or whatever. Um, mm. And you have to have a certain amount published. So you have to have a book at least one like f- published monograph and then additional like whatever articles other book chapters conference presentations classes you've taught like all of that is part of this packet and then mm-hmm. once you have the book and like what are whatever else because different schools and departments have like different requirements you go you like would then petition to you know be promoted to associate professor which is when you actually have tenure okay so that's like what the idea is so so again the dissertation is sort of this like rough draft of a book in theory not everyone publishes their dissertation some people take like a chunk of it and then like do a different project but you know like it's meant to be like a springboard basically because the idea is like this is the the field that you're in this is like the subject area that you are an expert on so like your book would come out of that right yeah i mean that's basically what I did yeah. right with my master's thesis so like I wrote a master's thesis um on the you know what I can even just read it to you yeah <laughs> read you the title of my master's thesis developing the cartooning mind the history theory benefits and practice of comic books and visual arts education right so that was my thesis and then I built a website comicarted.com we pitch it at the end of every episode of drawing a dialogue because that's where drawing a dialogue is hosted Mm -hmm. right but that's like that was the springboard for my comic art ed work and i just published i never actually published my thesis but i just published a version of my thesis in as a chapter Mm -hmm. in a new textbook titled teaching with comics empirical analytical and professional experiences um edited by uh, Robert Aman and Lars Wallner, and I'm going to probably do an episode of Drawing a Dialogue on my chapter. Yeah. Um, just talking more about that. But that's exactly what I did is like I wrote a thesis, I did all my research. This was my professional, this is what I wanted to do professionally yeah. was to be a comic art educator. Um, and that's what I did. I am a high school teacher, which uh, has its own challenges when you tr- start to try to enter the academic space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as in, it's not as recognized as a achievable, <laughs> as a recognized as an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, that's that's what it did. It is sprung, is it gave me a springboard for being a professional in the field that I honestly, that, you know, I, I kind of made up. Because <laughs> there wasn't a lot of published about it right yeah. like this is a field i made up and now it's getting kind of more recognized um part of the work uh that me and remus are doing together is helping making that become more of a recognized thing and sort of bringing people together because there are plenty of teachers who do it we just haven't come together mm-hmm. and so it's really cool to be growing this sort of field to be honest yeah and it's we've um, talked about that too because i think like 
er, pretty early in drawing a dialogue, we t- we've talked about the fact that like most of the like education writing about comics is on teaching comics in an English classroom, right? So like how to like analyze yes. them, not making them, which is a different yes. field. So it is really cool. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a field that I'm sure plenty of people have been doing oh, yeah. it, but we haven't come together. Mm-hmm a lot so it's exciting to be part of this textbook it's one of the first textbooks that includes art educators and well i'll talk about it more in the future (laughs) but yeah that's basically what i did but it was with a master's thesis rather than a phd anyway so that kind of i asked an answer (laughs) i haven't asked my question yet but the question i wanted to ask you was uh not only is it the idea of a phd thesis or phd dissertation is to create a field in which you become the academic professor for, you become an expert in. I was going to ask, why? Why do a PhD, th- why do a dissertation? What is the purpose of a doctorate? Yeah. Literally. I mean, li- <laughs> <laughs> very literally, it is to get a tenure track job. There's, I think one of the things that was very like interesting and illuminating for me when I first started is that like outside of academia, there's a bit of, um, mythology i want to say about like academic writing like it's it's definitely like held up as like oh like academic writing is an inherently like more like a higher standard more rigorous um because we do you know there's obviously things like peer review and like citation practices and stuff that that are formalized and meant to in in um meant to uh preserve academic integrity right um Mm -hmm. but I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the reason that academics write and publish is because they need to in order to get tenure. It's their job. And that's very obvious. I feel like that is also at the same time very obvious. But like it's a lot of academic writing exists because people needed something for their tenure packet or because graduate students needed something for their portfolio. Like and that's not to say it can't be good. Also, there's a lot of obviously fantastic academic writing, but I think it does explain why um, there's so much of it and not all of it is good, I would say. <laughs> and it doesn't pay. Right. I wasn't paid. It doesn't, it doesn't pay. pay. You, if, if you go to my website, if you go to the website, uh, the Paul Grave Macmillan website that's selling it, my chapter is $30. I don't get I don't I don't get a stink of that. Yeah. You, yeah, you don't get <laughs> The whole book is $160. Yeah, you don't academic <laughs> academics the writers do not get paid because I did it for You free. do it for free because remember <laughs> the imp- the idea is that if you were writing and publishing academically, you are in an academic job and your pay right. in the academic job is dependent upon you doing a bunch of things including publishing. So you which is, yeah, which is why the idea that I'm a high school teacher is, like, wacko. Right. And because, like, because, <laughs> like, I, I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm writing about K through 12 students. Shouldn't I be working with K through 12 students? And that's not, it's just not the point right. of, of publishing. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that's the other thing people don't realize is that, like, academic right when you are publishing, you do not get paid because, in theory, your pay should be the tenure line professorship pay but of course one there's not a lot of those tenure jobs anymore (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. most people are adjuncting or doing alt act or in increasingly precarious paid positions and still have to publish um to try to get into tenure but then there's also like you know independent scholars or scholars that are working in different fields like kathy and i right 
where like I'm, I'm considered an independent scholar. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I mean, I, because I'm in grad school, I'm technically not because I'm affiliated with the University of Florida, but like I'm not going into a tenured mm-hmm. job. So once I graduate, I will be an independent scholar where like if you want to, you can still there's, you know, people often still invite contributions, but like it's unpaid, like the labor's all unpaid. So it's not very like um, it's like who actually has these opportunities. Right. And it's that's it. it it's not a great system. <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of a terrible system. Academic publishing. I mean, it was it was it was a labor of love. Yeah, people do it, and genuinely, that's book. why people. do it. I was it. very excited to be part of it. Yeah, but but yeah. I think I also see this a lot on the other end because I work at JSTOR, and you know, a lot of people that use JSTOR don't understand academic publishing. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it it it's just it's not a it's academic publishing is not a good system. I would say. <laughs> I would say. I mean, so like when I asked, what is the purpose of a PhD? And you said a job. I also am thinking culturally. The cultural reason that we have people who write dissertations, who publish, is to build knowledge, right? Is to document knowledge. Would you agree with that? I think that's what universities uh, would say. I think Mm -hmm. that's sort of like what the um historical impetus for like developing tenure conceptually is right because if to remind you know maybe folks who aren't who don't know um or the original purpose of tenure was to make it so that professors you know people working in academia could not be persecuted or lose their jobs for writing things that might be considered politically unsavory or unpopular or whatever right because the idea is that once you have tenure it's really hard to get fired like you have extreme yeah. job security and and to protect you as if you're criticizing your government exactly you know like if and to protect your job so you are able to fr- speak freely yeah. so that was what the right. original purpose of tenure is now would you ask me is that s- still the system today i don't know because i think one, the the historical, tra- the current trajectory, let's say, of university programs is a model of the like, very capitalist model that's focused on privatization and profit and not actually very interested in preserving tenure or academic thought or academic freedom. Um Something that gets talked, this is maybe beyond the scope of this episode, but something that gets talked about a lot is like the crisis of adjunctification. So adjuncts are contingent faculty. They are folks that teach and are paid by the, by class, by the class, like the number of classes they teach. So they are not given benefits and they are not, usually they're not on contract. So they can just be like fired at any time. Yeah, and I think that's a lot. A lot of cartoonists. Yeah, a lot like of cartoonists adjunct. Like a lot. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like like they take a class at SVA. They take a class at. I'm trying to think of another. Micah. Yale. <laughs> Yale. <laughs> Micah. Um, I know. I know someone who teaches at Yale. So um, yeah, they take a they, they teach a class. Yeah, and wh- they teach a and class, what'll... and and that that could pay them, uh, like it could be they could be paid three thousand dollars, six thousand dollars for just one class or less. <laughs> I know folks that get paid way yeah. less per class and then they teach like four or five classes a month just to survive. Um, and a lot of universities, because it is a lot cheaper to pay adjuncts and then you don't – because remember, 
a 10 year line teaching position is a million million dollars like millions of dollars because you're not just and you're, you're investing for like the rest of that person's career you're investing in their career but also like this is the difference between part-time and full-time even just like loosely right is you have to pay benefits yes. right so it's just a it's just more expensive you have to even if you aren't talking about their entire career even if you're talking annually yeah. It'll cost more because you have to have employee benefits. And you have to think about things like those pesky labor laws. Um, so a lot of universities are intentionally removing tenure tracks. So when someone leaves, they won't hire a new tenure professor. They will just cut it and replace it with adjuncts. And as a consequence, there are now very few tenure positions, especially in the humanities. Um and a lot more people with PhDs than there are tenure track lines, not because we don't need all of these people to be tenured and teaching and doing the work, but because schools have decided that they would rather just pay for cheap labor and not preserve tenure. Um, and some schools now are even moving away from tenure entirely because they want to be able to fire people who criticize the government. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, it's hard, I think, like, because I think, like, the ideals of academia are what people are sort of, like, thinking of when they come into a PhD program, right? Or, like, what, like, you're sort of, like, taught and what is sort of, like, held in high esteem. But, like, if you look at the actual practical reality of what's happening, like, it's a sinking ship, <laughs> it's not a good it's mm -hmm. not good it the forecast isn't great and that's not even getting into like you know the the many ways in which academia historically is very like white supremacist very colonialist very eugenist like based in eugenics and ableism like you know like who actually has the opportunities to move into those spaces like what is hidden knowledge so it's I have complicated feelings, I would say, about publishing in academia and about tenure more broadly <laughs> um, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, is neither here nor there. Obviously, I'm still in a program and getting a dissertation despite that. So, you know, I can't say too much. But for me, l like I mentioned, when I came into grad school, I never planned on going on the academic job market. Um, I wasn't super interested in pursuing a tenure track position. Um, and that sort of got like more affirmed for me the longer I was there because I just didn't want, I, I just didn't, you know, I wanted to do work with like museums and things like that. That was more interesting to me. But then once I actually like saw sort of the ethical stakes of staying in academia, I was like, oh no, this isn't for me. Like I definitely can't do this. Mm. So I'm finishing purely because it's a project that I feel very strongly about and want to see completed. And that and that's that's the thing, yeah. right? Like why would why do you do a PhD dissertation? And I think that's what I mean by it's for the knowledge. Yeah. To be able to spend time building knowledge, to mm -hmm. gather it, to distill it and publish it. It is right. Yeah, because it is a, it is the only time where although again it's a little different for me since i work full-time at a different job now but in theory when you are in a grad program you are you have funding even if it's not a lot of funding or very good funding um and you in theory are being given like a lot of time and resources to just focus on this project right and that's a rare thing to have and so it it, it is still 
I think like, you know, a lot of dissertations, I think a lot of people's dissertations are really cool. People often say that like dissertations are the most innovative work that people do because it's like your first big project that you're using to sort of like establish yourself. <laughs> so it's a little easier mm -hmm. to take risks or like be bold, um, you know? Yeah. And what is your dissertation? What is this project you're talking about? You don't need to like, just like summarize what your research is. Yeah. Um, um, so to be super brief, I am looking at what I call uh, trans world making strategies in comics and zines by trans creators. So world making is a, is a queer theory term that I'm sort of like borrowing and sort of building on um, where you're basically looking, where I'm basically looking at like what are folks doing now in the contemporary moments that could be sort of like show us a potential like different, better future. Um, so world making for me is very like similar to prefigurative politics, which is when you like politically are just like, we're just going to enact right now the way that we think things should be. Um, mm instead of like waiting for the change that makes those things possible in theory um or yeah so it, it's a high it's like a very political understanding of world making and, and the creators that i'm specifically working with are like using their art as part of this is like are people that i think considered their work to be very like aligned politically with ideas like trans liberation and abolition um and why is documenting this and writing about this work valuable because the work exists yeah the art exists so why is a academic take and analysis of this stuff useful and helpful to the world yeah so for me it's very much i think one of the things that i find exciting about um particularly like queer theory and trans studies which are like the major fields that i'm sort of within are there's a there's a way in which it both one for better or worse for better or worse having academics write about your work is a way to get more established in your career right there is like a direct mm. there is like a direct uh thing there of like uh you know it, it, academic validation leads to things like increased attention awards um i think jose munos uh who i've talked about before and whose book cruising utopias is like a major keystone for my project in in cruising utopias he talks about he writes about his friends who are performance artists right and he talks mm -hmm. there's like a chapter i forget which one where he talks about writing about i think it's vaginal davis um, who was a as a uh, a trans performer, right? And he talks about how like when he write, they sort of have this arrangement where like she lets him come see her shows, you know, and he goes and supports her shows, and then he writes about her for like the New York Times or like different like publishing venues, right? And that makes it so that the shows become more legitimized and bigger and pe more people come and see them and so she gets more opportunities um mm -hmm. so there is sort of there is this relationship there where like in whatever limited way i do i do think it's important to raise up people doing important work that's otherwise not getting scholarly attention 
Um, because there are some very real, like, material benefits that come out of that, even though I think, Mm -hmm. like, I say that also acknowledging there's a lot of ways in which academia is, like, exploitative and gets things wrong and, like, blah, blah, blah. Um, In my case, I'm specifically writing about people I know, and part of my project is, like, talking to them and getting consent from them and, like, making sure that I am not misrepresenting or not including them where they don't want to be included. Like, trying to, like, sidestep or avoid or work with that, like, exploit that like exploitative element of academia, right? Mm-hmm. The other part of it is, uh, for me, it's about archiving. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm really also influenced by, like, queer – the history of queer archiving and archiving methods um, – so traditionally, I think I, we maybe have brushed on this before, but traditionally, like, queer people are their own archivists, um, by which I mean, like, institu- a lot of, especially historically, a lot of uh, institutional archiving, it was sort of contained within universities or big institutions and very focused and very controlled by, like, white heterosexual men, right? Um, which is why it's harder to find... It's getting easier now, especially for, like, queer materials, but, like, that's why traditionally, like, certain voices are missing from archival records, right? And that's sort of a, a particularly underrepresented groups, right? But um, queer people have a long history of archiving their own work and doing community archives. And when I say archiving, I mean, like, literally, like, community archiving, like, the Lesbian History Archive in New York City, which started in, like, someone's apartment. And they just kept like boxes and boxes of archival material in their apartment. <laughs> um, and and this is and this is something that you talk about more at length: the queer archives and libraries yeah. on episode forty, the research episode. Yeah, and but but also um, in addition to like literal archiving practices of just like getting material and keeping it safe, I'm also talking about things like um, video recording or documentary documentaries or uh, like I think like ACT UP uh, activists are really well really well known for one of the things that they sort of revolutionized in their activism was that they were very intentional about recording all of their protests. They had a, uh, they even had like ACT UP had a subgroup within it called Diva TV, um, which stands for, if I recall correctly, damn insurrectionist video activists or something like that, where Mm -hmm. they would record their, they would record their own protests and like keep record of what they were doing, um, which is like a Mm -hmm. huge thing. Uh, um, because that meant that, like, they had counter-narratives to the mainstream documentation of those protests. Right. Which wouldn't have been as favorable or, like, would have, you know, misinterpreted what was happening. And and it's, and exactly, it's about building history. Mm-hmm. It's about writing your own history. It's about not being erased. Right. From the history. And I think we talked a lot about this at the very beginning. Um, and I don't think we're necessarily talking about canonization although maybe we are Mm -hmm. right because we talked about how the canon uh can be detrimental and this was like when we very very much started the drawing a dialogue but i think that's still a struggle Mm -hmm. but i think re-canonizing re uh realizing that there's a more context and more people um in a history who are creating that i would you say that's part of your project i think so i think it's not necessarily something that i'm explicitly dealing with but i do think there is within comic studies right which would technically be like the academic field that this falls within also um there's a specific there is a comics canon 
right? And I think we've talked mm-hmm. about that. Like, there's certain titles like uh, Mouse, Fun Home, <laughs> Superhero Comics, like th- these things that sort of get, like, attention and have been written about a lot. And and I think I would say that what I'm doing is is I'm less interested in, like, being like, hey, update the comics canon to include these people and more like creating my own yeah. canon, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I, and I hope, my hope is that, like, other people also do that because I also am not trying to be like, I am the expert on trans comics and my canon is the canon because, like, I'm very deliberately looking at a very specific subset, right? So obviously there's a lot of stuff that is being made that I'm not going to look at. And I think also part of what I'm doing is, um, and it's privy to this, is part of my project is I want to do a lot of interviewing. And, and I want to include those interviews because I, I, I also see that as a way to, like, decenter myself as the only voice in the project, right? Because obviously the chapters are my perspective, my analysis, but I don't want it to be like, I don't like the, and this is an issue I think more in like white, white Western or academic tradition, but like I don't want to position myself as like the lone or like the, I'm not like the special expert on this stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I'm writing about it because I'm in those groups and I'm passionate about that work and I want to see it get documented. Um, because I think there's some really valuable and interesting and important work being done. But that doesn't mean that like I'm the special I'm the special keeper of the trans comics knowledge um, or the only keeper of that knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't mean to put us on a tangent, but I think um, just talking about why people do PhD dissertations, like why mm-hmm. why is this a choice that people are making if it is um if there's a lot of criticism on academia mm-hmm. right so why are making people making this choice right i think no i um, think that's is valuable for us to think about it yeah and i know and again like for me it's definitely entirely because i want to <laughs> right <laughs> and i realize that's like a little silly to say but for me i for me specifically, it's also like an important thing to say because there was a point where I very seriously considered leaving without finishing. Um, mm-hmm. So it is because I want to is the reason I am finishing because I am not in that academic market, right? That is not the traje- trajectory that my career is on. So I don't need to do it at all. There's no, there's no like economic or job career whatever reason that i need it i just am doing it because i want to yeah and i think and i think i have a master's degree and a lot of that was because i wanted it on my resume yeah you know like i wanted to because i had been for many years i had been being an a comic book educator i had been doing that I was known locally as someone who taught about comic books. I was working on comic books for children. Um, And I think having that professional line on my resume was helpful for opening doors. Yeah. And I would say that I did a lot of research and I still use that knowledge that I built for myself um, professionally. Mm -hmm. So it was valuable. It was valuable for me to get my master's degree. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking about whether I wanted a PhD because I think a lot of people I wrote a huge <laughs> Yeah, your master's thesis. is way longer than usual. Those things are usually like yeah. 30 to 40 pages. Isn't yours it like was, 70? <laughs> mine is like a book. Yeah, you wrote, like wrote a whole a book. book. 
And that's like the people, the my professors were like, this is a dissertation. Like you wrote a dissertation. Um, yeah. But I think my master's thesis is serving the purpose of what a PhD would serve a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I It just would not get me a tenure track position. <laughs> right. <laughs> because... I mean, and I think there's, and two more, I mean, we say this every time, but I think it's valuable to just keep thinking about what drawing a dialogue is. And what it is, is continuing that research, mm-hmm. that, that like writing, that research, that building of knowledge that I think is, is valuable. It is. Um, it is. And, and project with you and do it in a way that's accessible to people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I also, I realize, I think, like, I, I come off as very negative of academia, and that's deliberate. I, to be clear, that is deliberate. I don't like it or trust it, having been in it for a while now. Um, but mm-hmm. but I do think that doesn't mean that there aren't things that are valuable or people that are within academia that are doing, I think, work that is really valuable and important. Like, I'm not saying, like, well... I am saying a little bit like abolish academia, but I, I also think that there are still, like, there's parts of it that are good. And that's why I like talking to you, Kathy, because I feel like sometimes you do remind me of the parts that are valuable. <laughs> I mean, I'm still a teacher, well, you yeah. know, like I think it's, and I think, and I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of negativity around it. And I don't, what I'm, what I want to be conscious of is the privilege around that. Yes. Right. Yeah. The privilege of. And I'm not accusing you of this, but uh, I want people, if you want an education, I want you to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I want you to not feel negative about it. <laughs> For sure. You. No, and I think. Obviously, we want your eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And I think to concerns, I think for me, that's why I get so frustrated because I do think higher education is so important from that like philosophical level. Right. Yeah. It's frustrating Mm -hmm. to see it get dragged to hell by capitalist vultures. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It should be accessible to anyone who wants it. Yeah. And I will also say it shouldn't feel. Yeah. Sorry, I, w- I just want to add for context here, too, because I think this is important to maybe understanding my positionality. Um, and this is a little bit of a tangent. We don't have to get super into it. But I I think I've said this before. My undergrad degree is in illustration. Um, and part of the reason why I first went to grad school, again, remember, because I said I didn't necessarily want to do tenureship, was that I realized that, like, I could not get... I knew I didn't want to do freelance art and I could not get the kind of job I needed with a BFA. Um, yeah. So it was. You want that line on your resume? Yeah, it was 100%. <laughs> like a big portion of it for me was. And, you know, it was like, oh, I have this thing I want to write about or whatever. But like it wasn't a romantic thing for me. It was very much a like I I need a way to build my career so that I'm not constantly worried about starving to death. And, like, yeah. I, there's a lot of ways in which I'm very privileged, and I, like, try to acknowledge that privilege also, um, you know, economically, things like that. Um, I, I also am kind of – I'm not a – okay, I have a complicated situation where I'm not a first-generation student because I have two grandparents that have PhDs, but neither of my parents graduated college. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what I mean is, like, I, I was like, I'm not accusing you of anything because I know where you're coming from. Oh, no, I know you're um, not. I just want to make sure that the I'm listeners like, know. I guess I'm, like, I'm like imagining, like, every politician goes to an Ivy because they need to go to an Ivy in order to get elected to something. For sure. Like, it's just so... Yeah, the, it, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, like, an entire world of, like, oh, I must get 
a Yale degree in order to have the political career that I want that has nothing to do with knowledge building 100%. at all. Whatsoever. And that was the thing that was really int- like shocking to me. I like, you know, because again, like I, I don't call myself first generation because that's not technically accurate. But I also like neither. I technically am in the sense that like my grandparents didn't tell me anything about their grad school experience. Yeah, you can't get help right. from, from your parents. And my parents didn't know my parent my, yeah. my dad doesn't know anything about it. He <laughs> he uh, you know, bless him, he didn't graduate. Uh you know, he he had an anxiety attack and got a job instead. Um very relatable. Mm-hmm. And very relatable. He and so like I um I when I came in, I didn't realize that like the majority of my colleagues, like the majority of people with me, were raised by parents that were working professors, and so for them it was a very natural. Like they had all the tools, they had been given all this knowledge. They went to prestigious undergrads, and they it wasn't and a diff- probably prestigious high schools probably yeah and that's not all of them to be right. clear also a lot of first gen folks i know who are doing amazing work or like folks from more complicated positions but like it is a majority of people that come up who go to phd programs who come from families that have been in phd programs and so are just like trained to know what to expect um and yeah. trying to navigate that when you don't know what to expect and is- and also like as as you know i work i work in uh i work at a private school that um has a lot of that expectation that family knowledge that family expectations um and also making sure that people who are like first generation who this is new (laughs) are aren't shocked and horrified (laughs) and put in positions that could traumatize you (laughs) yeah i've said because you're surrounded by I've said this before and I'll say it again. I came into act I didn't like go straight to grad school after undergrad. I was not like completely oblivious. Like I had a pretty good understanding of what was going on and I was not super I was kind of going into it like I know that this is exploitative. I know that this isn't great, but like I'm going to take what I can from it. I was still shocked and traumatized. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I kind of came yep. in with my eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> You don't know till you right. Don't. It's it really it can take you by surprise, um, especially if you don't have yeah. that like generational knowledge to help you out. Yeah. So it's been an hour. So you know that's normally when we wrap up. Yeah. But I just I um I, yeah, and I th- I think we both see a lot of obviously. Look at what we're doing. There's a lot of value in it for us. Yes. You know, there's a lot of value in it. Um. So thank you so much for like talking about what phd thesis or phd dissertation see now i know uh the dissertation uh, exam is like mm-hmm. and good luck remus thank you I'm, I'm excited for your project that's awesome yeah i uh i just have some edits that i need to make this weekend and then i can start mailing stuff you can off, do it which is cool it's happening now yeah it's and then i have to now. actually go write the whole thing um and then you actually just have to do it yeah <laughs> But but oh. again, I, ha- I don't have I don't I don't have to rush it because I'm not on that funding clock, so I can take my time, which I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think what don't you have to do it within like five years or something, ten years or something? Yeah, it's it technically. So it's, my understanding, and again, this is my I think this is just a University of Florida thing. Um, if I if I don't from the point of the exam, if I don't defend within five years, um, they just ha- this the department would have to petition the school to make an exception to let me do it. Um, 
And the coordinator said that they have done that before, but it's not preferable. And also, I don't really want to be working on this for 10 years. I would love to move on with my life. <laughs> so, so so five years. Five years. Five years or less is sort of, you know, ideal. All right. You're, you'll do it. You got this. Well, thank you so much. Uh, do we have any conclusions? I feel like we did this last time. It feels like we already have sort of a conclusionary statement. But do you have any conclusions, summaries? Um, I would just say, like I, 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 like I said, I want to talk about this to sort of demystify it. And I hope I, whenever I like am critical of academia, it's not so much to be like, so if you're interested in this, don't you do it as much as like, you know, make sure that you fully know what you're getting into. Yeah, eyes open. Eyes open. Eyes open. Because sure. again, there's lots of people who are doing amazing work that are challenging the system every day. Um, there's lots of ways oh, to make yeah, it work totally. for you that aren't on the university's uh, structure. And you know, maybe there, are, you know, maybe there are some folks that like are like, oh, actually, this isn't what I thought it was, and I don't want to do it, and that's also fine. Because I think, I think part of it too is like culturally we have a hard time with the idea of like trying something and it not working we tend to think of that as like a failure right Mm -hmm. but like even if you like end up going to grad school and then like two years in you're like actually this sucks i want to leave like that's still two years of knowledge they can't take that from you you didn't fail at anything Mm -hmm. you just changed as a person you know (laughs) like you changed career paths to quote harley quinn (laughs) perfect thank you Comic books. Comic books. Um, well, thank you so much, Remus. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you. I I had been considering, it's been uh, a few years, I had been considering getting a PhD because when you have an um, MA, people, it's sort of expected that you're going to get a PhD. Um, <laughs> and I think I finally, this last year, I kind of concluded that that's not really where I'm going because uh, I, get, I get to do what I want to do, which is... Mm-hmm teach comics and talk about comics and just uh i just see a lot of value in teaching comics and being with kids and Mm -hmm. and it's just so awesome oh i remembered something i was gonna say so long ago oh you should just say it whatever okay um and part of the issue with uh canon this is so long ago um is that a lot of the time when i was writing my chapter for teaching with comics um, that chapter I was just telling you that just got published, part of the peer review was saying, uh, give us citations. Yeah. Right. And I was like, there aren't academically published citations for this because this is a new field. Like, I am hoping to be someone who is, I have a chapter now that can be cited for people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, I wanted to be citations because there aren't citations because this is a uh it's a new field that hasn't been written about a lot Mm -hmm. and so i am making i am building citations for people in the future because it's sort of expected that you're gonna include citations for your writing so it's interesting i'm like how are you how is anyone supposed to be the first if they're (laughs) if you always have to be citing stuff that has been previously published um so um that's another like <laughs> canonizing right yeah. like that's yeah. that's one of the reasons why i wanted to be published was to be like hey here is something for a uh, future people to cite yeah um yeah thank you and if you want that pdf if you want to read my chapter uh shoot me an email and i will send you 
the link. W- wink, wink, wink. Um, but speaking of um, book chapters, that also reminds me a chapter that I wrote two years ago, wildly, um, was just released in... Oh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. It was a few months ago now. Um, but I, the reason I was I found out I forgot because they published it or whatever, and they told us, and that's fine. Um, but it's on JSTOR. <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, Yay, I'm on JSTOR!" That's so fun. You might be on JSTOR too. Actually, I have to I have to check if that book's up there. Um, but it's a chapter I wrote on transmasculine autobiography in comics, um, and. It is the only thing that comes up on JSTOR if you search for transmasculine <laughs> comics. So that tells you cool. uh, how many people are doing that work. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, but I'm also happy to share uh, that chapter with folks if they're interested. Because um, books on JSTOR are not available for independent folks, unfortunately. Um, mm, okay. But you could probably also go, go to your library and get it that way, honestly. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rima. Thank you. Um, so, uh, now it's time for letters to the editor where you can write us emails and, um, let me just say to all the people who told me that you are listening, I said, please send us an email. So (laughs) I know you're there and I know you're listening and you can write us a letter at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Uh, please do. So thank you to Downtown Boys for the use of their song Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. You can get it off their band camp. They've been playing songs again. They've been playing music again. Um, they just did a little East Coast tour. Um, so if they're coming to your town, please hit up Downtown Boys. They are absolutely wonderful. Um, really, it's your turn. Really quick, I also just wanted to add because I speaking of this podcast sort of being like an archive of my grad school experience episode 25 transmasculinity and child development it's that was the that was the episode where i was talking about what i wrote for this book chapter (laughs) ah episode 25 that's a long yeah so some historical continuous continuums for you to to go explore dear uh, dear listener (laughs) (laughs) sorry um um where are we finals finals is it my turn? It is your turn. Okay. So, like Kathy mentioned, uh, Drawing a Dialogue is hosted by Comic Art Ed, her extremely good comic arts education website that you should go check out. You can also go to drawingadialogue.com to get the citations for this episode. Not, I think there's going to be any citations for this episode because we were just, I guess, just the other the other episodes of Drawing a Dialogue we referenced. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll link if you if you di- weren't like had a notepad writing down what episodes of drawing a dialogue we've talked about i'll i'll include links of those things yeah so you can email us at drawing a dialogue at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at draw a dialogue um, without the ing you can follow me on twitter at remus maurice which is r-e-m-u-s-m-a-u-r-i-c-e and you can follow me at kathy g john c-a-t-h-y g-j-o-h-n and you can also uh, follow uh, comic art ed at comic art ed on uh, twitter and instagram um so what are you reading remus so um i 
I'm going to talk about a book, but first I just wanted to plug, I've been very uh, movie-pilled lately. I've really gotten into, I've always loved movies, um, but uh, my, my, I, I, I volunteer with a, with a group called Hyperreal Film Club in Austin, and uh, some folks from Hyperreal got me to download a Letterboxd, which is sort of like, if you're unfamiliar, it's sort of like a Goodreads, but for movies, <laughs> um, where you can... It, it, you can sort of like log and review movies that you've seen and stuff. And you can also see what folks that you follow have. And it's very fun. I think it's the only good social media that exists now because it doesn't just show you people's bad takes. You have to go look for them. And um, my letterboxed is, uh, if I recall correctly, Three Wolf Moons, which is T-H-R-E-E-W-O-L-F-M-O-O-N-S if you want to go see what I am watching. Um, but what I am reading, what I actually wanted to mention is I, st- I picked up, when I was in New York a couple weeks ago, I picked up Erica Friedman's book By Your Side, The First 100 Years of Yuri Anime and Manga. Ooh! Yeah, so Erica Friedman is really cool. She's someone who's been you've mentioned her before. yeah she's someone who's been writing about like yuri and bl and everything for like years and years and years like she's deeply embedded in that community um cool. and this book is a collection of a lot of her writing over the past 20 years plus some new stuff that sort of just like <laughs> excuse me sort of just like goes through the history of yuri um and it's like tropes and stuff and it's very good um it's very readable because like you know erica's mostly writing for like a public audience right so it's not super dense or Mm -hmm. anything like that um and it's fun i love reading about yuri (laughs) (laughs) wow that's wonderful i'm not what's the last movie you watched um lyle and i just watched videodrome last night i am in a horror mood because it's october um of course but so but i literally like I've, I've when I was in New York, we watched uh the we watched Scanners, which is another Cronenberg. We watched The Thing. We watched um we're all going to the World's Fair, which I actually I think you might like a lot, Kathy. The director's non-binary, mm. um, and it's sort of like it's it's very much like uh kind of a love letter to like analog horror and like YouTube and Reddit like type horror scenarios and things like that. It's so. It's the first movie I've seen in a long time, and I was watching with um, a couple of friends of mine, and, and we're all very, like, chatty, talkative people. Um, that movie ended, and we just sat in complete silence for five minutes. Mm. We were, like, completely speechless, just, like, sitting with cool. it, which never happens for me. Um, so I really recommend that one also. Um, and I also have been cool. showing everyone like, – I. I, I, this isn't a new one. Um, I watched Blood for Dracula first, like, a couple months ago and became really obsessed with it. And then I made my partner Lyle watch it and also one of my friends in New York watch it. Um, it's it's a Paul, Paul Morrissey, who is a friend of Andy Warhol's. They call it Andy Warhol's Young Dracula also. It's Blood for Dracula. Andy Warhol mm. didn't have anything to do with it. I just think that it's very <laughs> funny. Paul Morrissey's just, like, his BFF or whatever. Um, and it's it's a very... It's a fast. It's so fun because Udo Kier plays like the saddest, sickest little Dracula you have ever seen in your life, and it's mm. it's technically very beautiful. Like the mise en scène and the cinematography is all like really technically beautiful, and then like the performances are just like completely over the top, like so camp. Um, mm. <laughs> so big ups, love. I'm, tr- I'm really currently obsessed with Paul Morrissey and his like specific brand of being a pervert. Um, that I'm trying to like get it up in there with. So 
all yeah, delicious. They, Paul Morrissey was a big person for uh, Michael DeForge's movie uh, stream yeah. on Twitch. He, he, Paul Morrissey oh. also did Trash in, I want to say, 1970 or around there, which was the first to have, mm-hmm. like, a first film to have a uh, transgender actress in, like, a lead role. Mm-hmm. So he's a he's a cool dude. He's definitely weird. I he identifies as conservative <laughs> and anti-abortion, but also makes like the weirdliest horniest movies I've ever seen. I don't know. He's a weird dude. I'm trying to like get inside his brain right now. <laughs> mm. Cool. So uh, I'm not a big movie person. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just I get like it could be the most interesting movie in the world, and the moment like an hour strikes, I'm like. Done. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I'm like fully done. Like I need to like just get into the habit of like just pausing. Oh, yeah. and, like, and watching movies in like two days or something because I just like I it could be s- the, my favorite movie in the world and I'm just like done. I think that's reasonable. <laughs> I don't know why. I I have been I made a joke on Twitter that I'm just gonna start cutting movies because I think 90 minutes is around like the perfect length for a movie and yeah. anything longer than that is yeah. unnecessary and I'm just going to start I'm just going to start stopping at 90 minutes and whatever's left of the movie not my problem <laughs> it I should be 90 last minutes movie, I think the last movie I saw was Funny Pages actually Ooh, how was which that? would be interesting Um, I loved it but I can see how part of why I loved it was how grotesque it was <laughs> <laughs> so if you are sincerely trying to watch a movie about uh independent comics and independent cartoonists i think you would be upset with it ah. but if you want to get into the head of someone who has who like loves our crumb oh hell yeah <laughs> i keep cursing in this episode my apologies it's all right. I just, but like, serious, but it's a critique, yeah. right? It's like someone who loves R. Crumb and it's like gross. And you're like, this sucks. Oh, I do like that. That sounds, that's on. I, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> it stars, um, one of the main actors is someone from Our Flag Means Death. Oh, he's the, okay. um, he's the guy, um, with the hairline, uh, scar on his lip. Um, uh, he's bald. Yes. You probably won't know his name. Uh, yeah. yeah. I know what you're talking about. Uh, Lucius's uh, boyfriend. Right. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Who plays like the best character. <laughs> anyway, that's funny pages. Nice. Um, okay. Now you need to actually ask right. me the question. So what, what, are you, uh, the what have you been reading? <laughs> um, so I've been reading... Um, Hurricane Season by uh, Fernanda Melchor. Melchor. Um, she is a Mexican author. This like won a ton of awards. It was a shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. Um, so it's a it's a novel in translation. It's literature in translation. The it was translated from Spanish by Sophie Hughes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, just a it's just it's a novel. It's one of those novels that um is like one it's not one run on sentence sentence but it like looks like it like there's no paragraph breaks oh. it's like fully justified like each page is just like a solid 
page of text. Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, literary. Um, but it all it's like about like these, these intense intersecting people in a small town in Mexico, and they're all like it's like, just like re- they're really harsh to each other, and there's like a lot of violence and sexual violence, and they're like, and it's like a like about growing up and like drug use and alcohol and like <laughs> it's like very intense. Whoa, okay. <laughs> Um, and it, it's a short book, but I'm still, I'm still me, so I'm still only like halfway through. <laughs> um, uh, but it's like 200 pages. Um, but that's great. And I just like wanted to. It's it's been on my list because it won the award for. Oh gosh, it won a t- book in translation on in some some award not the booker prize like the booker prize is like the biggest one so that's the one that's on the cover but it did win a literature and translation award mm-hmm. that uh an ishi was a judge for oh, okay and and john darneal oh, were, okay were judges. so that's uh, so that's the connection for you <laughs> so they well that's one connection and then the second connection is that ross hernandez who is my friend who was on the podcast a few episodes ago um, also recommended nice. it to me because I, I was looking for um, some literature uh, from Mexico because I had read, um, I've been reading a Mexican-Canadian author. Um, so she actually lives in Canada, mm-hmm. but she all of her books take place, not all of them, that's the ones I read all took place in Mexico. And so I was like, oh, I want to read more literature from Mexico. And so he recommended it to me. And then I was like, oh, this is the one that Annie, she and John Darnielle uh, ch- chose to win a prize so i should finally three people whose opinions i really trust on literature i should just read this book (laughs) um so yeah so it's been fantastic and then i also picked up um clowns in a cornfield for uh the uh spooky times um uh because it is uh this is going to be our um november episode but when we're recording Mm -hmm. it it is a October. Yeah. So um, I, I'm reading Clown in a Cornfield by Adam Caesar, I think is how you would pronounce his last name. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, I literally just started this morning. Um, but it's, I, I watched it because I, I'm on like book talk. I don't know. Are you on book talk, TikTok? <laughs> no, book, I do sometimes talking get about TikToks books? making fun of book talk, but I don't actually get book talk. <laughs> yeah. So it's a book talk. There's a horror reviewer that I watch, and he said if you really like scream you should read this book so i because it's about teens being terrible to each other i'm assuming um but i'm excited (laughs) Uh, this is what i'm gonna read uh for spooky season all right i wonder you know sometimes when our listeners are like okay they just said goodbye and they just signed off um and now they're gonna talk about the books that they read because you, you guys are by now used to what are we reading. I wonder if they're like, oh, this section is 15 minutes. Long. Oh no, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope that's fun for you, mm-hmm. for our listeners. Oh, I'm sure um, it is. And thank you so much, uh, Remus. Um, and thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. Solidarity forever. <laughs>